It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Cavalry Audio. It's Cade Courtley, and this is Can You Survive This Podcast. The show is designed to teach you techniques that will increase your chances of survival in any life-threatening disaster scenario imaginable. Join me each week as I challenge my guests to see if they have what it takes to get out alive. Knowledge is power, people. Can you survive this podcast? My fellow survivors, if you can hear my voice, that means you are still alive. And as always, it's my mission to keep things that way. I'm Cade Courtley. I'm the host of Can You Survive This Podcast? And today, literally an amazing story, an amazing guest. It's one of those things that you wouldn't believe until you read the book. And now I get a chance to speak with the author and the gentleman who, you know, he's an American author, he's a naval architect, he's an inventor and a sailor. And in 1982, he had to abandon his vessel, the Napoleon Solo, which was uh, just over 21 feet long and found himself in a life raft, which was approximately six feet in diameter for 76 days adrift in the Atlantic Ocean. And he's here and he's here to talk about it. It's an incredible story. He wrote about it in his best-selling book, Adrift 76 Days Lost at Sea, which was a New York Times bestseller for 36 weeks. And I am honored to introduce you to Stephen Callahan. Sir, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. First off, how you feeling? How you doing? Oh, I'm doing okay for an old fella. You have to remember this story is a, I call it my old fish tale. You know, it was way more than half my lifetime ago now. So it's it's kind of in the rear view mirror in many ways, but it's surprising to me uh, that it's, uh, as my wife calls it, sort of the energizer bunny. It just keeps on going and going. I don't know. I guess survival is, I guess in my view, the... Uh, universal human issue. We face different circumstances, but we all do it on a day-by-day basis to greater or lesser degree. So I guess that's uh, part of the attraction. Well, I mean, something is timeless when it's as incredible as what you went through. When you were younger, who got you into boating or sailing? Was it something you just picked up on yourself? Was it a family member or a friend? It's a bit of a mix. You know, I was a pretty small, I was very small, kind of awkward, socially awkward kid well into high school. And I spent a lot of time by myself or with small groups of people basically running around in the woods, climbing mountains, spending time messing around at a pond that my family kind of created out of this old swamp. And when I was about, uh, well, when I was 11, I joined the Boy Scouts, which was a normal thing back in that era anyway. I don't know exactly how the Boy Scouts are doing now, but it was pretty common then that attracted me because the guy who ran our troop was really sort of an ideal mentor. He really wanted the kids themselves to basically run the troop. And I became adept at dealing with things like working with rope and knives and doing first aid and all the stuff that the Boy Scouts really were involved with. And our, the troop was very active in the outer doors. We did a lot of climbing in the mountains and, and that sort of thing. And he had a boat and asked me to go sailing with him. I guess I was probably about 12 at the time. And it was just a little day sailor and we would go off the coast until we didn't see land anymore. And I loved that. I loved going into this new wilderness environment and everything sort of felt normal to me. I remember one of the first times going offshore and he took the helm and I went and I just sort of laid down on the bottom of the boat when it was healed. And, you know, you're sort of eye level with the surface of the water and I don't know whether it was kind of womb-like in a way. And, and I just felt at home there. And I, I seemed to get it, you know, in terms of understanding the dynamics of it. And not just in an intellectual way, but sort of just in a very visceral, physical way. And I ended up crewing with this guy into my college years. 
And he was, like I say, a wonderful mentor. We were partners on the boat. I always felt like a partner on the boat. We made decisions together. I would navigate and do all the things you needed to do on the boat. So that was really my start. And I, while a lot of boys in school were obsessed with girls and cars, I was obsessed probably with girls, but they were kind of unreachable to me at the time. And boats, by the time I left high school, my after school job was helping my dentist build a 40 foot trimaran. And as my senior project, I wanted to build a sailing hydrofoil actually, but I couldn't afford it. So I settled on teaching myself celestial navigation. And this mentor of mine, we had moved up in boats to about a 25 footer at that time that we were sailing from Boston up to Maine in the summer times. And he basically let me borrow the boat and take friends out or whatever. And I started single-handing off the coast of New England, which I don't think he ever really knew what I was doing with his boat, but <laughs> he was very generous to me in that respect. So that really got me into it. And my there weren't that many even books about sailing at that point in time. But of those that I read, it included things like Robert Manry's Tinkerbell. He was a newspaper editor in the in the Midwest who took a little boat that was normally would be sailed in ponds and, and things like that, a 13 and a half foot town class sloop and decked it over, put a little cabin on it and sailed it to England. And I thought, wow, wow, you know, that's, that's incredible. And I loved, you know, books like Contiki and also uh, John Guswell went around the world in a 21 footer. So it opened up the possibility for me, just sort of an average guy to see that I could lead some kind of life of adventure. It was very attractive to me at the time. Tell me a little bit about Napoleon Solo, which was the ship that sank, leaving yeah. you in the Atlantic on a uh, life raft. Tell me a little bit about it, because I know you built it, you designed it. Right. Well, I was, I guess I was probably 27 or so when I designed Napoleon Solo. When I, I went to university, and when I got out, I worked in a shipyard for a very short while. But basically, in that time, you know, I, I think sailing has always reflected what's going on in society overall. And you have, so you have to kind of get back to the history of that time. And there was a big back to the land movement, a lot of interest in people of my age group to getting back close to nature and dealing with things in a, I don't know, less technocratic way, maybe, if you will. And there was also sort of a seasteading movement, as a friend of mine coined the term that reflected that where a lot of people were building their own boats and that sort of thing and leading a, an alternative lifestyle on boats. Also, wooden boats were dead cheap then. Everybody was giving them away, essentially. And so we had these like little liveaboard communes in, in various <laughs> towns. And when I got out of school, I built a 28-footer with my first wife and we lived on that for a number of years. And I was building, helping other people build boats but I was also very interested in design. My father was an architect. I grew up drawing and was interested in the design process. So I was taking a correspondence school. And then through all of this, we moved to Maine, where my wife was doing organic farming, and I was still messing around in boats. And I ended up working for a naval architect near here, both designing and, as it turned out, teaching design. But my main goal was, at that point, was to follow Manry, basically, to cross an ocean in a small boat. So I had already started creating the ideas for Napoleon Solo. My whole idea was to create a very compact but efficient lifestyle aboard this boat. So it was just like you say, it was 21 feet. It's kind of like camper van going across the Atlantic. Uh, there had been other boats that small going across the Atlantic before, but I wasn't out to set a record. But what I wanted to do was to design a boat that performed pretty well using sort of modern technology and, and all of that, but that I actually would serve as a minimalist home for a long period of time. So in 19, I guess we launched the boat in 1980, sailed it from Annapolis up to Massachusetts through a pretty stormy fall, given a good shakedown. And the next spring, I took off from Newport, Rhode Island on this venture, which started out <laughs> actually a little badly. I, I ended up making a mistake and losing the mast. So I had a jury rig the mast and <laughs> sailed the boat back to Rhode Island and re-rigged it and then sailed it back to Bermuda again. That leg single-handed and where a friend of mine, Chris from Canada, who helped me build the boat, joined me and we sailed the boat together the rest of the way to England, which was an incredible, I don't know, it just fulfilled all of my childhood goals. So I felt very 
I don't know, fulfilled and, and at ease once we got to England, but I had no idea what was going to be the next step. At that point, I was 29 years old and I was going to start a race from there to the Caribbean, but basically that was just an excuse to get the boat back, sort of back home. And I left Penzance, England in this race. It was very, very stormy. Actually, we lost one sailor on the way to the race, almost lost another who was caught in the middle of a hurricane. And he finally made it, showed up very late. But the first few days of the race were very stormy. And we got down from England, you go down around the edge of France there, between there and Spain, you got the Bay of Biscay, which is pretty notorious because it shells up very quickly. And with it blowing really hard, the waves were really horrible. And and we lost, and actually, I can't remember how many boats, but four or five boats. And I, I had some damage. And so I, I dropped out of the race and then started basically cruising down the coast of Spain and Portugal, which was wonderful. It was like stepping back 200 years almost. And it was just fantastic. And made my way out to uh, Madeira, down to the Canary Islands, where I spent a few months and then left there to basically take the milk run, which should be the easiest part of the, the voyage. I'd already gone across the northern part of the North Atlantic, which is stormy and horrible and in many ways. In the southern part, from the Canaries to the Caribbean, basically you get down into the trade winds, you're going with the current, with the winds. So I had a lovely week until all hell broke loose. So you've already done a transatlantic on a boat you built yourself that's about the size of a large SUV, which is kind of crazy to think about. And you're on your way back on what you call the milk run, and you wake up to an impact. And you see, you've got a hole in Napoleon Solo. Yeah. How um, long? It was, it, how long? It was the middle of the night. Yeah. And it was blowing up pretty hard. It was on its way to being a gale. I don't know if it was gale conditions exactly at that time. I didn't really have a wind meter or anything, but the waves were, I don't know, three meters, about 10 feet high on average. Uh, so that's sort of the significant wave height, which sounds kind of big, but that's not really huge in ocean terms. And I'd faced those kind of worse conditions than that on the boat before. So I wasn't too concerned, but I, I'm always cautious and you're always looking for, we have an expression, a good sailor always prepares for the worst and lets the best take care of itself. Sure. So I would get up and kind of inspect the boat and make sure everything was okay. And I finally got tired of being clothed and laying down. I wasn't really sleeping. Not that you sleep that well being single-handed anyway, but you sleep for maybe an hour at a time or something. And so I finally stupidly took almost all my clothes off, everything but a t-shirt and lay down and sometime around sort of local midnight, if you will, there was a big bash on the side of the boat and water came flooding in like really like you just opened up a fire hydrant. And I knew the boat was doomed like immediately. We, we, do, we also have another saying, uh, never, you always step up to the life raft. You never want to get in a life raft unless you know that your boat is actually pretty much doomed. And Fortunately for me, I had prepared the boat pretty well. I had watertight compartments in it and all of that. And it finally, it stabilized in the water after a couple of minutes. I was, I thought it was going to go straight down because the main part of the accommodation was hold. If in a bigger boat, I could have compartmentalized the boat to where it could have actually had enough air in it in these compartments to keep Mm. it afloat. But in a small boat like that, pretty much impossible. So Fortunately for me, it nosed down, so the whole forward half of the boat was underwater, but the back half had developed another additional airlock the way it was going down, and that gave it enough buoyancy that it just stayed afloat. But of course, every wave was washing right over it, so... But those those airtight compartments, those were buying you time, weren't they? Yes. I mean, so during this, okay, you know the clock is ticking. You've seen the damage. You've already said, okay, this this thing's going down. Talk to me about the thought process after the impact. Well, you know, I've talked to, I've spent, much like you guys, I've spent a lot of time talking to survivors over the last, I don't know, 38 years. I had known some before then too, as well, uh, especially sailors. And I, I don't think my experience is, is completely unique in terms of like the stages that people go through and thought processes. And the thought process isn't just one thing. And I talk about this through Adrift, especially the long experience like this in being alone, where I kind of divide myself into a, a physical part and a rational part and an emotional part that all have kind of competing needs, if you will, and desires. And they aren't always the same thing. Sometimes they're quite diametrically opposed. So there's a lot of strain from that. And even in this initial, what I call the, the stage of impact, sort of escaping the immediate threat, mm-hmm. 
I found that I had uh, all these voices going on in my head. There was part of me that was being like incredibly wimpy and, you know, you're going to die, you're going to die, you know, and then another part of me that was cut, the rational part of me that had been more used to dealing with various levels of crisis at sea. And it was saying, oh, just shut the hell up and focusing on what I actually had to do. And there was even once I got up on deck where I was going to inflate the life raft, I had noticed that the camera on the aft end of the boat had somehow turned itself on. An electrical system had fused together. And I found that quite amusing <laughs> in a sort of dark gallows humor kind of way. So I don't know, you have all these voices going on in your head at time, or at least I did. And some of us, I think I'm sure you, you guys are among this group because you're de- used to dealing with a lot of stressful situations. You can kind of learn how to do the psychological splitting, as we call it, mm-hmm. where, you know, you can kind of put aside. Yeah, it's not that it's not that you're not scared. You're scared to death. But you can kind of shove that to the side to a certain degree and focus on what you need to do. So I, you know, I basically got the raft inflated. You're supposed to pick up this hundred pound thing and put it over the side, but you're on this bucking Bronco in the middle of a storm being washed over. But fortunately for me, sort of overboard was on board. So I just kind of inflated it and mm-hmm. slipped off and got in. But I knew I was pretty much right in the middle of the Atlantic Ocean. And I knew where I would be drifting to, which would be downwind, down current, almost 2000 miles to the Caribbean. And I knew that what was in the raft itself was not enough to keep me alive, probably for very long. But I had this big ditch kit in the boat and other stuff, jugs of water and all kinds of things. So I, I took the chance to get back on the boat, dive down inside, and I ended up getting a, a piece of cushion and a sleeping bag, which was completely sodden, but it still was insulation, possible insulation, and the ditch kit, which had a lot of critical equipment in it. But I was, uh, I was exhausted, and it was cold enough at night where hypothermia was an issue. Mm-hmm. So I was hanging on to the boat, hoping that I could await the daylight where I could actually physically see what damage was done. Because it was, you know, you got to remember this middle of the night, it was dark. I couldn't really see what had happened to the boat. And of course, having fantasies about, oh, maybe I can, you know, I've been pretty good with jury rigging things. Maybe I can figure out a way of fixing this or at least patching it up enough where I can get the water out and continue on the voyage or at least get more food and water. But like I say, you know, you're, you're basically anchored in the ocean to this boat full of water and the raft is really light and bobbling around mm-hmm. on the top of it. And every wave that was breaking, hitting the raft was like being in an auto accident. So I was worried the raft might get torn apart. And finally a wave hit and there was relative peace in the raft. And I was like, oh goodness. And I poked my head out and I was drifting away from the boat. Obviously the link that I had to the boat had parted and mm-hmm. off I went. So. Everything was a mixed blessing like like that. Everything in the in the survival situation, as far as I'm concerned, has a sort of up and down side, or almost everything anyway. So you you know, on the downside, obviously, you know, okay, there goes all food, water, hope of getting out of this thing. And I felt just like completely hopeless in a way for days in a, in a period which many of us call recoil, or I call it disorientation and fear which is, you know, after you've escaped the immediate threat, it's like, oh, all the old rules of your life are gone away. How do I make a living out here? How can I possibly survive out here? And it's an extremely difficult period, actually, in some ways, probably the most difficult to navigate until you can kind of adapt. And and, uh, for me, that took two weeks. I want to get into that here in in a minute, but I had a question. And this was something that I found to be kind of interesting and really was sort of surprised by. You write in the book that you believe you were impacted by a whale. And this is something that actually occurs fairly frequently. I had no idea that was something that is definitely a threat for boaters and and folks out in the ocean like that. Explain a little bit more about that. Yeah. The ocean is a very big wilderness. And it is incredible that you can think that, you know, it's got no roadways or anything that everybody follows, but it always amazes me how often a ship and a boat going in different directions have to change course in order to avoid one another. And besides that, there's a lot of stuff afloat in the ocean and probably more now than ever before. But even back then, I've I'd already passed bits of old boat, you know, the, God knows where that came from or all kinds of trash whole trees afloat, containers. There's a lot of stuff to hit out there, but included in that are also, you know, sea creatures, whales, big sharks, uh, sea monsters, I suppose. (laughs) 
I've seen things, you see this light patch in the water, you don't really know what it is under there. But I'd even hit a whale, we were racing to Bermuda in, I don't know, a couple of years, I guess it was 1979, actually, just a couple of years beforehand. And I was steering and we were entering the Gulf Stream and the Gulf Stream, some, it's different, but it's, you know, a lot of current and everything. And it creates very jagged waves at times. You see it on the horizon. And once we got into this, there wasn't that much wind, but really bouncy waves. And all of a sudden, boom, right in front of the boat was just like the sunken log, big sunken log. And it was a sperm whale. I put the helm down, but there was no way to avoid the whale. We smacked into it. And it came up astern, writhing around and started steaming towards us, which looked like the old Moby Dick kind of really? scenario, you know, waves coming off its head, streaming right so at it, us. So basically, you kind of, you, really, you pissed it really off. Pissed this thing off now. It just followed us for a while and turned around and, and went its own way. But uh, whales are complex creatures. And I always feel like each one has its own personality. Could have just as easily come up and really given us a, a clobber. But a huge number of us have hit whales before. There were at least, and hopefully maybe even a few more now, quite a few of them out there. And I've you know, looked down their blowholes beside the boat and been really close to them a lot. But a small boat, especially in a stormy kind of condition, it's a sailboat. It doesn't have an engine on or anything. And you got the sound of breaking waves. I just feel like, you know, it was probably a whale just minding its own business, steaming along. And then boom, I was like, oh my God, you know, right. <laughs> I just bumped my head. I wonder what that was. But I've had quite a number of friends who've, who've hit whales before. So it's not that unusual. So Steve, you talk about immediate actions and sort of just that survival instinct, short time, got to get into it, got to do this, got to do this, got to do this. You were smart enough to go and realize you dove back down on into and got supplies that taking that action, getting the sleeping bag, that probably is the reason why you're still here today. But then the reality of seeing Napoleon Solo drifting away from you, you're on a six foot life raft by yourself. When did the mindset go from immediate actions? When did the adrenaline wear off? And it really sunk in, shit, I am in the middle of the Atlantic Ocean. Pretty much right away, actually. As soon as I was drifting off from the boat, it was like, oh, this, thank God it's more peaceful. And I'm at least not really worried so much about the raft being ripped apart because that was a real conundrum, like hang on to the boat or not. But then it was, I don't know, it was a really dismal period for me. First of all, I was really cold. So getting through the night and then ensuing nights, because I'm soaking wet, I'm in a relatively cold environment, not freezing, not like the north part of the North Atlantic, but it was cold enough to have you know, like snow up in the mountains in the Canaries before I left. So probably in the 50s, I would guess, something like that. And water temperature, maybe 70-ish. And when you're soaked like that and the wind's blowing and, and everything, I mean, I had a canopy over the raft, fortunately, which kept a lot of the wind off me, but just staying warm was difficult. So it was kind of a split thing. One is, you know, dealing with the physical part of it. And I was well enough trained, I guess, and experienced and knowledgeable to know what the, the main risks were. I had some injuries, but nothing serious. There's not much you can do about a serious injury in a life raft. And of course, that can kill you in seconds to minutes. And then after that, then the major risk, of of course, is hypothermia, drowning. Well, I was okay about the drowning issue, but uh, hypothermia it, it can certainly kill you in minutes to hours. And that was the major concern in, immediately. I knew I wouldn't have to worry about food and water for days at least. And actually, a lot of people think food immediately. And it's like, well, you can live about a month without food. So, right. you know, that really wasn't the major concern. And I think that there was, again, there were different parts of me. There was a big part of me and it's hard not to get overwhelmed by it that struck immediately, which was a feeling of complete doom. There's like, there's no way I'm going to even get to the shipping lanes. I have eight pints of water, but the shipping lanes are more than two weeks away. I'm probably going to be dead by the time I even get there. I'm in a very empty part of the Atlantic Ocean. I had an EPIRB, uh, mm -hmm. a, like a, a radio transmitter that would do a a sort of SOS out. But at the time, actually, it wouldn't be till the next fall that they were being monitored by satellite. You, you know, you had, it had to be an over, overpassing aircraft. And I was in a part of the ocean that was pretty much devoid of anything like that. So if you could have delayed this by a few months, you would have had a EPIRB that got picked up on satellite. You would have been out there for a couple of days, maybe, right? 
Hopefully, actually, it was sort of an irony. I came back to Maine after all of this and uh, was speaking to a friend of mine, a boat fabulous sailor and boat designer friend of mine, Walter Green, who lives down in the southern part of Maine. And Walter was asking me, you know, he's, he's a very curious guy. He was asking me, you know, what kind of equipment would you have carried if you had it? And, you know, one thing I said was like, well, we have these new things called handheld VHF radios. They aren't waterproof, but you can put them in a waterproof pouch. And I said, that would have really helped because I probably could have at least talked to one of the ships that passed me by. Even if they're not, not all monitoring radio, and my experience had been that maybe 50% you mm-hmm. get an answer from the radio room, but 50% would have saved me within a couple of weeks anyway, or within a week. And the other thing was that the satellite started monitoring EPIRBs, and that fall he was on a trimaran that got capsized, and he had a handheld VHF radio with him, and his EPIRB was picked up by satellite, and when the sh- when a ship was diverted to pick him up, he was able to communicate with the ship and be much more effective in, in getting his crew off that boat. So, so you, uh, yeah, think, you yeah. were, you're saving lives based on your experience, essentially. There's a great example right there. I don't know. I don't know if I save lives, but hopefully I haven't hurt too many <laughs> and hopefully have over the years provided some functional hmm. advice to people that's, that's helped them out. So Steve, you're into what ends up being 76 days adrift. And I love getting into the mindset because you went from like we discussed earlier, the immediate actions to, I write about this in my book, a long haul survival strategy where you kind of make that switch into I could be out here for a long time. What am I going to do? I discuss creating little victories to get you from one day to the next. Like a great example is the POWs in the Hanoi Hilton. John McCain talked about he got a cockroach. That was a victory that that got him to the next day. Did you create sort of little timelines, little goals, little things once you realized, hey, I might be in this for 76 days to kind of get you through the afternoon, through the evening, through the sunset to the sunrise, anything like that, that you kind of started creating? Yeah, actually, like I say, the first two weeks are really difficult because I was speeding myself up pretty bad in terms of, God, what a boneheaded move. You shouldn't be out here. I'd go back and realize, you know, all the failures of my life. Oh, you sucked at business. You sucked at relationships. This is your life now. I mean, like, this is what it's all amounted to. You know, I had my 30th birthday in the life raft a couple of days into it. And uh, I kind of, I had taken this float off the boat and was cutting it up and putting notes on it and tossing them out, hoping that they might go out and somebody might find them and know that I was adrift out there. And I kind of wrote my own epitaph, you know, (laughs) drew a few, you know, made a few pictures, you know, designed a couple of boats, died, you know, it just seemed so empty. And it was really, really hard to get through this period of beating myself up and seeing that I could survive. But that more rational part of me that had faced things before, difficulties in life, I'm pretty persistent about things. So no matter how I'm feeling, I keep trying to chip away at things. And I guess as an overall concept, uh, one thing I convinced myself of very early on, pretty much immediately was, look, this isn't the end of a voyage. It's just a continuation in a more humble craft than I had. Not that my craft wasn't pretty humble to begin with, but this is a really humble craft. And I know that other people have done this before. I carried a survival manual written by Dula Robertson, who wrote a fantastic book, Survive the Savage Seas, who was adrifted with his family in the Pacific for 38 days. Mm. I'd read the Baileys, who were almost four months adrift, a couple, and they had fortunately a couple of rafts. I had my own, I don't know, I look at survival situations as we have commonalities, but every single instance is completely unique as well. And so I knew I had my unique problems to deal with. But I tried to normalize life as much as possible. So that meant, first of all, I was doing exercises whenever I could. I had developed these sort of modified yoga exercises because I had back issues and I was paranoid that they might act up, which could kill me. I started keeping a log right away as long as it was, I was wet pretty much half the time through the whole voyage, but there would be times where it calmed down enough where I could actually take out these little pads of paper and start keeping notes, doing navigation, doing all the normal shipboard routines I could within reason. And then of course you have to live off, you learn to live off the environment. In a general sense, I, I consider, I've always described the voyage of, in, if you want to summarize it in a sentence is 
you know, I basically spent two and a half months learning to live like an aquatic caveman. Mm -hmm. And it takes a while to develop the skills and adapt to this new environment. But everything that floats in the ocean becomes an island. It develops an ecology. And that's what we ocean survivors rely upon over the long term. You know, barnacles grow on the raft and little fish show up and that attracts bigger fish and so on and so forth. And that's what we rely upon as we drift across the ocean. But it takes a while for this to evolve. So initially, you're looking out at the ocean and it's like beautiful, you know, like a swimming pool three miles deep, just gorgeous, but it's empty pretty much. But within a couple of days, fish started showing up. And so I started the process of learning how to become this aquatic caveman, but it did take me about two weeks. So getting back to your specific question, yes, what I try to encourage people to do is if you're facing a a crisis, a a trauma of some sort, you know where you got to go, you know what the end point is, but don't obsess about it. Instead, you have to divvy it up into little chunks, little achievable goals. So that's what I would do. I would every day, I was like, go through, prioritize what needs the most. Oh, well, the raft needs pumping up. You got to do that. Develop a routine. And you know this as well is there's really no crisp dividing line between normal life and survival. It's just the survival is life on steroids. And I found that you still have the highs, you still have lows, but they're just epic highs and epic lows, and they can be squished right up against one another. So the highs can be something like, you know, when I first got in the raft, I had all these little jets of water coming up because the knife I used to cut my ditch kit away and whatnot, and the the chaos of getting out of the boat had laid on the bottom of the raft and it cut my rear end up some and poked a couple of little holes on the bottom of the raft, which is a just a thin sheet of rubber, basically, eighth inch reinforced rubber. And so that meant I had these little geysers coming up and I'd be sitting in water all the time. So I had to plug them up and, you know, they're, okay, how do I do this? Well, the plugs don't fit. Okay, what do I do? Uh, Well, sometimes survival demands that you create more damage in order to fix something. We see this even in companies that shut down, you know, they might be productive, profitable portions of the company, but they're not profitable enough or they have their own issues or things are evolving. So people sometimes create a little bit more damage in order to succeed in the long run. And that was a case of where, yeah, I had to cut, actually make the holes in the bottom of the raft a little bit bigger, Mm -hmm. which allowed me to put these plugs in and lash them up and so on. And, oh, guess what? The bottom of the raft is dry for the first time in three days. Oh my God, it's just wonderful. And these kind of things kind of keep you going. But another five minutes later, all of a sudden the raft is turned almost upside down It scoops up all this water, you bail it out. And then it, whoop, Five minutes later, same thing happens. And so my emotions would go through these huge waves, but I just try to, as best I could, focus on on what needed to be done. All these little achievable steps, navigate. How do I do that? How do I catch a fish? How do I make a lure? How do I do this? How do I do that? There's an amazing recurring theme with folks who are involved in situations like you were, and it is the never quit keep fighting, stay in the game. You were exercising, doing chores, created routines that you had to do. And that keeps you busy. And I think it keeps your brain in the right space, which is not quitting, not giving up. Did you ever cross that line and say, you know what, I think just shutting it down right now might be easier? Or did you always stay in the fight? I don't know. I guess I'm in a general sense, a pretty optimistic person. And even though there was a part of me, certainly that was saying, you're done, you know, you're never going to get out of this. There was that more rational part that always wanted to keep going because it had helped that I was aware that other people had been adrift for long periods of time. They gave me an inspiration to do it. There was also, I have to say, throughout the voyage in this especially in this uh, one period of time where I really did almost just finally pack it in. I felt a kind of silent company of survivors everywhere in the world. I was worldly enough. I traveled around and realized that many people spend their entire life in survival situations. And I just needed to chip off these little bits across the chart. And I knew if I could hang on long enough, I would reach my destination and be saved. So that was hopeful. And 
I would go through these big waves and have tantrums on occasion. You know, I'd break down and cry and yell and scream at the ocean and do all this other stuff. And some of it wasn't rational at all. And there was, you know, that part of me going, oh, this is silly. Why are you being like this? And then there was another part of me saying, I don't care. I just feel like doing this right now. So everybody has to deal with it in their own way. But I kept plugging away, adapting. And I got to a point after a couple of weeks where I was catching fish, producing water and feeling pretty positive because it was like I, by that time I had reached this period of adaptation, which I define as, okay, you've created a new world and you can live in that indefinitely as long as nothing else goes wrong. So you kind of put yourself in, you kind of put yourself in the, after that, the pity and the, I don't know, the depression, you went into sort of a mental cruise control given this is my new norm. Yeah. And it's like I say, you know, I felt like, I don't know, they're not these crisp dividing lines between different stages and and all of that, because as you were saying, you know, we have these little victories that keep us going, but sometimes you get set back, you know, Mm -hmm. you're constantly getting set back and then maybe you can edge forward a little bit, make a little bit of progress in your adaptation and so on. But when you get set back, yeah, there are a lot of times where it's just like, oh my God, I I can't deal with this anymore. You know, it's, it's painful. But I did, I, I want to get back to giving up because I did almost actually at one point, I had had a, a party for myself, which was to actually drink a little bit of water as baby to, to create about a pint and a quarter a day, which isn't right. a lot, but I actually drank a little bit of water on, on the 38th day because that was the length of time Dula Robertson and his family had survived. And I said, oh my God, I never thought I could do what they did, but here I am still. But just a couple of days later, on the 43rd day, actually, five days later, the Dorado, these big fish, mahi-mahi, you know, they're, they're pretty big, powerful fish. They had routinely damaged or broken this spear gun that I was using to hunt them. And this time they broke the shaft in half and rammed it into the bottom tube. And it took me about 10 days to figure out a solution to this problem. And without going into great detail, because it's pretty complicated. It basically meant that the raft only had a couple inches of freeboard. So a lot of water was washing in and out of the raft and any kind of sizable waves and made it really difficult to produce water, to fish, to do any of these things. And plus, I wasn't really going anywhere. And, you know, I wasn't drifting with the wind towards the Caribbean. So it was a really dismal period. I had all kinds of problems and I just got worn out to the point of where I just laid back and, you know, water was kind of washing around me and whatnot. And I knew I was getting more hypothermic, even though it wasn't that cold, but over a long period of time, you can Mm. get hypothermic without it being too cold. And I knew I was just done. So that came very close to the end. But fortunately for me, I slapped myself awake and, and said, get over it, so to speak, and go through my, I was always doing these mind games, how to fix things or how to approach problems. And so I just forced myself to go through every single piece of everything that I had in the raft that might actually solve the problem. And it dawned on me finally what I could do to fix it. And and it had to do with a, I had this fork, actually, a stainless steel fork that I could drive a pen down through this patch and it'd keep it together. And I was like, ha, how come it took me 10 days to figure this out? But in the end, that was that was probably the biggest high of the whole voyage. The biggest down was getting this big hole and dealing with it. And then all of a sudden I do this thing. And after this huge struggle, the bottom tube ended up holding air better than the top tube. And I, I, w- I felt like I was the king of the world. Like I just solved, you know, all the world's problems. And that kept me going. But by that time, my body was pretty beaten up. So for that whole last part of the voyage, it was a matter, I, I consider it a sort of a stage of hanging on. Mm-hmm. Well, that's just another great example of you staying in the fight and you get that victory after what took 10 days and you were talking about being top of the world and staying in the game, problem solving. I wanted to ask you, you talked about the Dorados a little bit earlier and basically around your raft, you sort of created this aquatic environment, your own sort of aquatic environment. And you realize, hey, my supplies are all but gone. I'm going to have to start getting fish. And I can only imagine the isolation probably was incredibly difficult. It had to be towards the top of the list after exposure and hunger and thirst and everything. So you started creating sort of a family with the Dorado. You you were naming some of them. You recognize some of them. 
And you had that as your family out there, if I'm right on that. And I can't wait to hear you discuss this a little bit. But at the same time, you realized if I'm going to survive, I'm going to have to eat some of my family members here. And I thought that was such a cool part of the book because there you are in this terrible situation, doing everything you can to stay alive. You create this, for lack of a better term, sort of relationship with these fish, which you realize I'm going to have to kill to stay alive. Could you discuss that a little bit? Yeah, actually, I I try to convey to people that a drift is really a fish tale. I'm just the narrator. I'm kind of like the the clumsy human observer in this incredible oceanic world that tested me, but it also provided me with just enough to get through it. And in through the process, I was very touched. I think it's it's quite common, as they say. There's no what do you call it. Uh, Everybody in a foxhole is <laughs> becomes religious or something. Right. I don't have a formal religion. I have my own. I was a philosophy major in school and whatnot, and I have my own. But I felt very, very spiritually touched through this environment, and I don't think I'm alone. And and in fact, I know I'm not. In looking back in the experience and realizing that I was delivered a lot of precious gifts from it finding out I was a lot stronger than I ever thought I was, but also being pointed out quite clearly what my weaknesses were and and failures and, and things that I might be given a chance to fix in the future. And the Dorado really are the stars of the show. I looked at them right away. I found out that they were, they, they, these fish school would first start with a couple of fish and and then there'd be a couple more the next day. It seemed like the raft was a point of rendezvous for them. I was fascinated by them. They were gorgeous. They were also food, which was very tempting. But I found out right away that they were also really fast and really smart. <laughs> I was unsuccessful catching them with line. They would just like bite off the line. Then I find a piece of wire and with some other stuff and use it. And they swim right and you know get hooked and swim really fast forward and clip the line off in front of the wire. So that was gone. And Fortunately, I had the spear gun, but I'm trying to get them close enough to the raft where I can spear them and they would do these sneak attacks and come up and bump me in the rear. They have this characteristic of hitting the bottoms of rafts. Other people have noticed this too. Sharks do the same thing. We're not really sure why they do this, but they're powerful fish too. So I'd always make sure I had my head up on a my equipment bag or something if I was lying down on the raft because it'd be just like somebody coming up and slugging you as hard as they can right in the face. And they would push the raft around in different ways. I was interested in their society and how they were, and but also looking at them as food. But initially, of course, they were primarily the food source. But as time went on, I was more and more fascinated by the fish and view them, quite frankly, as, as spiritual creatures. And I felt as the time went on in the raft and in the experience evolved, more of a connection with the whole universe. It wasn't like there's me and it, but we're part of a continuum. You know, the ocean is always my universal metaphor. And I look at things fluid like that. Like, you know, I call you Cade because, you know, it's easily recognizing you at that. And you call me Steve, but what are we really? You know, I'm, I don't want to get too abstract, but, you know, we're a combination of things. We're everything we think we are, but we're also everything everybody else thinks we are. When we shake somebody's hand, we exchange heat. Well, Whose is that? And I started thinking about these things too, in terms of the fish, as I'm eating the fish, you know, I'm, I'm taking their spirit within myself. And I think there's a unique feeling towards animals when you depend on them. I'm not talking about just doing it for fun, but when you depend on them for your very life, you learn to respect them and their characteristics. And I res- hugely respected these fish and they became as you say, they weren't only just food, but they became my companions. I would talk to them and they would have these mysterious behaviors. You know, I never saw them touch one another and they were obviously very fast and soon into the the experience, you know, proved that they could easily, within 24 hours, figured out the exact range of my spear gun. But as time went on, they seemed to allow me to, you know, I don't know, maybe they just got more used to me or something, Mm -hmm. but they got close enough where I could actually spear them. And by the end of the voyage, I would, you know, I was, then heat was, heat in the afternoon was a real issue. And I'd be like cooling myself off, putting my arms down in the ocean, swirling them around. And on occasion, I could actually touch them. And I can't tell you how spiritually touching that was for me. It was incredible. 
these wild animals out in the middle of the wilderness and be like walking up, you know, patting a bear or something or other to me. Mm -hmm. So yeah, they really are the stars of the show. They provide me with companionship, food, uh, nourishment. They almost killed me on the 43rd day (laughs) between there and the 50th day. They were always a threat. And in the very end, they actually would provide my salvation. So they really are the core of, of Adrift, just as being symbolic of the magic and the mystery of the world that lets us all keep going. Well, we have to talk about sharks, Stephen. <laughs> yeah, we could talk about sharks. Uh, yeah, it's actually kind of, it's not that dramatic for me, actually, the, the sharks. I mean, not, not that it wasn't at the time, but you know, I was familiar with the survival stories of people in the Pacific, like the Baileys and the Robertsons and so on. And, and people in the Pacific seem to, who've been in life rafts, have to learn how to adapt to living with sharks around them all the time. And that includes them coming up and running across the bottoms of rafts. And obviously, you're in an inflated raft. It's a pretty big threat. For me, they were more episodic than that. I don't know. I had, I don't know, maybe nine encounters with sharks and they varied. The first one was about two weeks into the voyage. I just caught my first Dorado actually, which was one of those real high points. You know, ah, I've got food. And I was lying down at night and all of a sudden there was like this flop, 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 flop across the bottom of the raft, which was a Dorado. And then boom, the whole raft gets kind of thrown up off the ocean. And it was a shark that was obviously coming up after the Dorado. And I totally freaked out, but I had my little spear gone and I look out and, you know, anything that in the ocean pretty much that's swimming around, you know, disturbs this plankton that's bioluminescent, you know, like billions of little fireflies, which is quite beautiful. But that's the only thing I could see of the shark with these swirls of bioluminescence. And I jab at it and jab at it and finally it would go away. And uh, another time I was lying down in the afternoon, I called it the afternoon bake off when (laughs) it got really hot and I was just trying to stay cool and and reserve energy. And all of a sudden the rafts being pulled around and, you know, the, the shark had come up and there were these ballast pockets on the bottom of the raft that fill with water to try to keep it stable and waves. And the shark had grabbed onto one of these pockets and was like jerking the whole raft around so it it varied sometimes when I hold the bottom of the raft, there was one that was kind of, I called it the water buzzard that obviously knew something was not right and was just like circling around the raft for days, you know, and at night and all of a sudden I'm trying to patch the thing down in the water and all of a sudden this gray shape, you know, kind of slides right under my hands. But actually I was pretty fortunate in that regard. And I just approached them as other predator animals, which is basically show them that you're not going to be an easy, easy target, that you can be at least some kind of a threat to them. So I would poke at them with my little spear, not expecting to actually do any damage, but that seemed to work, especially that sort of buzzard that was swirling around the raft. He finally came by close enough. I really hit them as hard as I could with the spear. And they have these very sensitive lateral lines that run down the Mm -hmm. back of the sides of their bodies that pick up really minute vibrations in the ocean. So I guess it would be like me just like hitting a real nerve and that shark just disappeared just like that. I'd never actually, I've never seen anything in the ocean disappear that fast. So it must've, must've hit a soft spot. Yeah. You know, I had a similar situation. I was swimming with sharks off NASA and all I had was a, about a four foot piece of PVC pipe. And mm-hmm. I'll never forget, it's one of those top 10 experiences that's a photograph in my memory forever. It turned and came toward me and the eyes rolled back and I punched it right there in the gill area, gill section. And that was, like you said, it was gone. And so, yeah. uh, thanks to a piece of plastic, I'm able to have this conversation <laughs> with you. <laughs> I got to ask you, what if you had to pick just one piece of gear that you had on that life raft? What was the one thing that you're like, I don't think I could have done it without this? Was it the spear gun? What do you think? To be honest, there's no way I could say there's one thing. Again, I don't think this is unique. There's so many elements of my experience where if something had just gone a little bit different, I wouldn't be here. Right. And in terms of equipment, that obviously would include more than one thing. If I didn't have the spear gun, I wouldn't have been able to collect food over the long haul. If I didn't have these solar stills, which I managed to get working, I wouldn't have had enough water to live beyond 
I don't know, probably two weeks at most with the water that I had stored because I had very little rainfall until towards the end of the voyage. So I would include those. I even talk about this in Adrift. Uh, some of my favorite human inventions have always been rope <laughs> and knives. And both of those proved critical because I could make, because with those basic tools and with some of the raw materials, you can make pretty much anything. I mean, right. I honestly like here, I live in the woods and whatnot. And I grew up, you know, making stuff out of, out of logs and rope and stuff like that. And so they were critical, obviously, as well, uh, to me anyway, I often point out that the pads of paper and pencils, which are also one of my favorite human inventions, they were as critical as having the spear or the raft itself or the solar stills. Mm -hmm. But then there were also things like, you know, if I didn't have space blanket and stuff at the early part of the voyage, I probably would have died of hypothermia before the next morning. So there's a lot. But the, the paper and the pencils, I often point out to people because for me, they were a really critical tool because I could not only keep, you know, practical navigational notes and things like that, but also it allowed me to kind of separate myself from the experience psychologically where I could write, you know, keep a log. Okay, this is a continuation of the voyage. What do you do? You keep a log and it's not just your position and whatnot, but it, hey, the Dorado did this and this today. Isn't that incredible? And it allowed me to kind of at least mentally recognize that there were precious things that were happening and also form ideas and, and just get myself a little bit out of the situation. So I, I thought that they were really critical. You know, we touched on it a little bit about the isolation factor and how absolutely challenging that probably was. I wanted to ask you, if you were with somebody else on that raft, would that have been easier? Or do you think because of two people consuming water supplies, you wouldn't have made it if there was a second person? What are your thoughts on that? Well, my thoughts go to a general concept and a drift. They're kind of themes that run through the story, things I thought a lot about at the time. And one of those is that everything is paradoxical and uh, every decision is a dilemma. You know, use a little piece of equipment. It's like, well, guess what? If I use this to fix that, guess what? I'm not going to have that piece of raw material to do something else that I might really need in the future. When it blows hard out, well, that's great because I'm drifting quickly towards my destination, but it makes it hard to fish and hard to collect water. So every situation, every detail, I try to accept, well, these are its qualities. And you try to embrace the ones that are positive and just try to deal as best you can with the ones that are negative. And I don't know, I can't remember. Actually, well, I've kind of lost, lost the plot there, as they say. I guess, I guess my question was, if there were two of you on that life raft. Oh, the do you, yeah, do you think you think you would yeah. have survived? That was a question I asked myself quite frequently in the raft because I realized that if I had had somebody else with me, well, I couldn't keep a watch out for ships all the time. Maybe ships passed me by that I could have signaled and would have picked us up had there been somebody else to keep a constant watch. Certainly when I ran into different problems, Somebody else who was brighter than me certainly could could have said, hey, dummy, here's a solution. And I actually even have a very concrete example of that. After this whole experience, I don't know, it was about 10 years later after Adrift was published. And I was doing a radio show with a bunch of kids in New York. And this this young boy got on the line and he said, well, you know, I read your book. And it was interesting that you said that you didn't have, you know, you lost this wire leader and you didn't have any more wire to make leader from to, to catch the fish with a, a hook and line. I said, yeah. And he, and he goes, yeah, but early in the book, you say, well, when you first get in the raft, there's a little light on the top of the raft, right? And I, well, yeah. And he is, well, there's a little battery that floats around in the ocean that develops this current to power that light, isn't there? And I go, yeah. And he goes, well, isn't there like a wire that runs between the two? And you know what? It never, ever dawned on me, nor had it dawned on any other adult I had talked to the whole time. So you never know. There could have been somebody who would have been critical to my survival. But on the other hand, I only had certain capacity to, to produce water, right. uh, a right. quarter, which was already really on the edge for me through the whole voyage, especially in the second half when I'm drifting really quite far south in the Caribbean. You know, it's very, very hot in the afternoon. So one of us probably would have died. And to me, I was very lucky to be alone because I didn't have to make a lot of very, very difficult decisions about, well, 
you know, how do we share this? And you get into those, you know, all those human issues to me make things, they take survival to a whole other level that I really don't have any direct experience with. So, and in some ways I regretted it, but in some ways I was also thankful. You know, it's funny you tell that story about a kid with a completely different sort of, hey, what about that? When I was a platoon commander, I made sure after I briefed my platoon on this is how we're going to do it. The first thing I always did was I went to the most junior guy and I said, what do you think? Because that might be a set of eyeballs and experience, a background that sees something that nobody else is seeing. So it's a really cool example that you just gave on that. Yeah, actually, I you know, I wrote another book called Capsize, which is about four guys who were on a boat and they left New Zealand, headed for Tonga in the winter in New Zealand. And the boat got flipped upside down. They spent four months on this half flooded boat, spending most of their time in this like little cave, the, this area of the boat that they could all kind of cram into. And the guy who, who's I saw the story through didn't know anything about boats, mm-hmm. nothing at all. I mean, he didn't know what a cleat was. And that kind of fascinated me. And interestingly, he became kind of, I don't know, the diplomat of the crew, if you will. There was a lot of tension. And his basic skill was he was a chef. He was a good cook. And uh, they actually rigged up a little stove and whatnot. And, you know, in these situations, you get pretty obsessive about food. And so he, he performed this kind of critical role in the survival of the whole crew, even though he didn't know a damn thing about the ocean or boats. So that really intrigued me. Steve, if you could call and have a 30-second conversation with a 28-year-old Steve Callahan, what would you tell him? Ooh, good question. But you only get 30 I'm not seconds. Sure if I'd tell him anything, actually. <laughs> One thing that I've found in life is that I've gone through other crises and, and whatnot, and they're never fun to go through. Eventually, one will kill me. But I found this quite common in, in survivors. The Baileys talked about this when they got picked up. It's like, oh my God, here it is. We're saved. But on the other hand, we feel like we're kings of our world. We've created this whole new, very precious kind of relationship with the world and getting plucked out of that and dealing with post-trauma then, which is his own sort of survival experience, can be a difficult thing. And even when it happened to me, I, I realized that there were elements of this voyage, things that I got out of it, I could never have gotten in any other way. There were things that I saw that were so incredible and I could never have seen if I wasn't in that situation. I think to a certain degree, that's why a lot of us do offshore sailing. A friend of mine once remarked, you know, on the, after this single-handed race to Bermuda, he, he goes, I just called the office and people out there were asking me if I'd had fun. And he says, they don't understand. We don't do this for fun. There's a difference between fun and fulfillment. And I think some of the most fulfilling parts of our lives are things that are they're difficult. The first American to sail around the, the world single-handed nonstop was a guy named Dodge Morgan. And People would ask him, like, Hillary, why would you climb Everest? And they would ask him, why on earth would you want to do this? And he said, because it's different and difficult. And that's kind of what I, my attitude is. I recognize that these things are difficult and can kill you. But, you know, I've been in hospital. I had leukemia, for example. And I just was so deeply touched by people's compassion that I could not have seen outside of that circumstance. So, you know, we don't look to go through these things, but there's no reason not to tackle things that are different and difficult. So I, I would probably sit there and smile and say, oh, you're going to learn a lot. But uh, I don't know if I'd warn him. So you don't want to ruin the surprise for a younger Steve Callahan, well, basically. Let him enjoy the ride. Yeah. Although I have to say, you know, I'm lucky enough that I got through it. So um, but I'm just very grateful. I'm grateful to the ocean. I'm grateful to all the people who went before me, who, including those who never made it back, who inspired people to create equipment and keep doing that and so on. So I'm just a pretty grateful guy. I've got one last question for you. And this is when you survive something like you did, or even when you're dealing with feeling sick or something like that, but especially being adrift for 76 days and you made it, do you reflect on that with a whole new appreciation of life to this day? Or is that something that, well, it happens, I'm moving on? It's hard to separate these big experiences of our life from the rest of our life. Certainly, this experience totally shaped everything I did afterwards and in relationships and opportunities, meeting incredible people, all that kind of stuff. 
so there was immediately, I mean, there, there are different stages of that as well. This was this sort of post-trauma thing, you know, immediately I was like, oh my God, you know, I went through that, you know, I, I can survive anything. There was a part of that, which I recognized at certain times could have been actually a little risky that maybe I was taking chances that because I was so, I don't know, self-confident or something or rather I shouldn't have been doing that. There was a part of me that was kind of amused by people who would, you know, when I got home and stuff and people go, oh, you have to excuse the condition of my apartment. I'm like, what? It's not, it's not leaking anywhere, is it? Uh, You know, uh, to me, it was just kind of what people's normal priorities were, were so different from mine. You know, as long as I had a little bit to drink and eat and it was like, hey, this is fine. But over time, things fade too. Mm-hmm. I can grouse as well as the best of them about things. And sometimes I have to remind myself that I get into a shower and more water goes down to the down the drain than I probably drank in two months or something. You know, it's so there both things exist, yeah. but there is always that reminder in the back of my head. I'm sure that your major experiences with sharks or whatever, they don't go away. You incorporate them into your life and certainly this experience was incorporated into mine. And in so many ways, I can't even begin to count them. Is it laughable for you when you hear people complain about having to spend 70 days in their apartment, getting food delivered and watching uh, Netflix and how they're complaining about, do you look at that and say, really? To some degree, there is a part of me that can kind of be short with people about it. It's like, you know, get a grip. How spoiled have we gotten as a culture where you have to sacrifice to help the culture overall by staying in your apartment for a while or whatever. But on the other hand, I also recognize that this is probably way more difficult for most people than it is for me. I am used to being in isolated environments for extended periods of time with very few or people or just by myself. I spent through leukemia already just eight years ago, spent a year in almost total isolation. And if I did go out, I had to have mask and gloves. Even my own germs are a threat to me at a certain point, you know, things like that. So I've had training to a certain degree. And I think that for a lot of people who have not suffered through these kinds of experiences, it is more stressful for them than it is for me. Again, I one person's stay in the park is another person's survival experience. So it's very difficult to judge people overall. But I think that we all as a culture have the opportunity here to gain from this experience. You know, I have a friend in New York who has a small apartment there and he's gone, I love this. I, you know, I'm caning chairs and, and learning to play the harp and do all these things I never you know, I had a chance to do, so to speak, but it requires us to get our heads into a a different space. And I, frankly, I feel like through this whole coronavirus thing as a culture, nationally, we have not handled it very well, that we've been kind of in denial for way too long. And in my view, denial is the number one enemy of the survivor. It's better to just face up to it. As we used to say, when I was a kid, take your medicine early and get on with it. But you have to recognize in in every, from my experience, if you want to deal with a problem, look exactly at what that problem is. Don't pretend it doesn't exist, but instead really analyze it. You know, the only way to figure out a patch to the raft is to really figure out what it is you have to deal with. What are the materials you have that could possibly deal with that? I'll use a specific example, which I think is, is great. There was a bunch of people go, flying out to the Bahamas and the plane crashed on the way out there. And they went drifting off with just what they had in their pockets, basically. And a couple of the guys said, well, whoa, I've got my wallet. And they pulled them out in the moonlight and said, ah, here's a credit card. you know. And they're looking at it in the moonlight and realizing it reflects light. And that's a key element of survivors. You stop thinking about what was this thing designed to do? What can it do? And uh, constantly adapting things. And so the next day they were successful at at signaling and overpassing flight with their credit cards. So we all have to look at life a little bit differently. We have to realize that we actually are in a collective survival situation and it requires adaptation. But we're in that, we're still in that stage of where a lot of people are in denial of course, a lot of people are younger where, of course, just like I did when I set off on Napoleon Solo, think that we're kind of invulnerable, but we are vulnerable. 
but don't fear the experience exactly because it does open up opportunities. You know, there's many famous sayings, but one of them is problems are opportunities in disguise. So we have to kind of like pull the disguise off and see what the opportunities are there for us. And I hope the best for everybody, but I, I do think that for me, I'm, I'm old now, first of all, so life doesn't owe me very much. I've had more, more lives than cats do. So I just wish everybody well, but I do hope that people can adapt. Well, Stephen, we uh, do a little thing on the show called an after action report, and it's basically summarizes our discussion that we've had and adapt or die, stay in the fight, never quit. Stephen, I can't thank you enough for uh, spending the time. Just an amazing life, several lives, and you're still here. And uh, we really appreciate you taking the time being on the show. Hey, folks, the best way to support our show is to subscribe, rate, and review on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast platform. You can also check out our YouTube channel for video content of all of our episodes. So ring that bell to subscribe. And if you have any survival questions you want answered, just leave it in the comments so you can be a survivor, not a statistic. Stephen Callahan, thank you very much, sir. Thank you. And good luck. Thanks. You too. Can You Survive This Podcast is a Cavalry Audio production recorded live from The Bunker in Denver, Colorado. Hosted by me, Kate Courtley. Produced by Brandon Morgan and Kate Courtley. Associate producer is Jeff Apple. Executive produced by Keegan Rosenberger and Dana Brunetti.